This Choircast podcast is brought to you by Honoring the Journey, a brand new podcast co-hosted by Leslie Neese and Karen Schock. Imagine that life is like a journey where we're all traveling our own path and soaking in the sights. Then imagine someone taking you gently by the hand and showing you a little bit of the path that they're traveling. You learn from them, see the sights that they see from their perspective, and then you jump back on your own path tucking beautiful pieces of their journey in your heart with you. A life journey is so beautiful and even more so when we get to hear from the perspectives of others who may see things differently, believe things differently, and even experience their journey in a different way. Let's honor these powerful journeys together and see how our hearts and lives expand as we journey together. Subscribe today to Honoring the Journey with Leslie Neese and Karen Schock. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Nat. I'm with my brother, John, as always. Say hi, John. Hi, John. Yeah, I realized that's something we hadn't done in a while. I got out of the habit of making you say something silly. So we'll start back again with just hi. And then we'll work our way back around to... Build up again? Okay. All right. The Cowboys will lose the Super Bowl, John, and say, We're not even going to make it to the Super Bowl. You don't think so? Dude, no. You are just spanking all the bad teams. Your, your team's great. I know. I know. We're playing, we're playing all the horrible teams and winning. Yeah. You crushed <laughs> the Giants. Way to go. Nice job. You beat the Commanders. Yes, you wow. did. <laughs> <laughs> you can't even beat a team with a good name. I'm just saying. Don't get me wrong. We got the, it's okay. The Niners beat up on the Seahawks. And we'll see what I'll they're hear made about of. it when my wife gets home. We'll see what they're made of next week. Because did you realize it? This is co- completely unrelated. I just think it's funny I know. that the next five teams that the Niners play are all birds. Really? We get Seahawks. We, we played the Seahawks this week. Okay, so starting with that game, it was Seahawks, Eagles, Seahawks, Cardinals, Ravens. We all eat some birds, y'all. Bok, 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 all the way to the NFC Championship game. I don't know. Let, let's go ahead and throw this out to the world. You know, so my wife is a Seahawks fan. I know, and I resisted calling her and like giving her a whole bunch of crap. And I'm a Cowboys fan. Who are the Cowboys playing this Sunday? Seahawks, baby. Yeah, so it's a good board. thing that uh, maybe maybe my wife and I just won't speak that day. <laughs> maybe. Maybe you should just we'll go like, on a day trip <laughs> and come back and see what happened. All right. But all this... All this has nothing to do with nothing. We haven't even introduced the podcast. I know, I know. Oh, by the way, this is not church. Because if it was church, you wouldn't be sitting around talking about football. You you would have Uh, left. If you were, actually, let me take that back. If you were at church in Texas, you absolutely would. The pastor would be on stage with his Cowboys jersey on, swearing to God, you know, telling all the congregation that God has blessed his Cowboys and this is their year. So to him, I say, screw you, pal. And your Cowboys. And your cowboy loving God. Anyway, um, we, have, we have an awesome guest today. I'm really excited. Um, uh, uh, Greg Garrett is here. Let me read you a little bit about him, then we're going to run right into an awesome conversation. Uh, so we have Greg Garrett is the uh, critically acclaimed author of over two dozen books, uh, fiction and nonfiction. Like his literary heroes, James Baldwin and Marilyn Robinson, Greg moves fluidly from fiction to nonfiction, exploring the big human questions his latest book is The Gospel According to James Baldwin, um, but he also co-wrote The Prodigal with Brendan Manning. He's got a, a, an awesome book uh, about you. T- uh, I think it's The Gospel According to You Too. So this is a guy that runs the gamut, all the things that I love. I mean, yeah, if really. he does like The yeah. Gospel According to, I don't even know what, uh, The Simpsons, that'd be great. Actually, somebody <laughs> did that. Recently. Yeah. Somebody did somebody that. Did yeah. that. I haven't read it. I actually own a copy, but I've never read it. Um, maybe one day. But anyway, without any further ado, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing, Greg? 
I'm good. I'm so glad to be with you guys and to talk about James Baldwin and Cowboys football and whatever it is that we uh, <laughs> that we uh, turn over in the next little bit. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, we should have warned you. We should actually have this sort of caveat uh, anytime we invite a guest onto the podcast. Just, you know, just as a disclaimer, things could go like any number of ways. It, it just really depends. Well, you know, <laughs> when you have two 50-something-year-old brothers <laughs> talking, you know, we're, we're going to, yeah, we're, yeah, it's going to go anywhere. We're like, remember that? Everywhere. Remember that? Remember that time in the third grade when mom bought me a Cowboys shirt and I wore it and you now use that as leverage against me? That's all right. I still somewhere, somewhere in my, in my clothing cabinets, I have a, an, an Oakland Raiders. Yeah, I do uh, too. Beanie that, yeah. that our parents bought me. And, uh, I was never a Raiders fan, but I, I somewhere have one that I own. It, it was on sale, dude, at Mervyn's or something. <laughs> it was like, I promise no, you, mom didn't give No one's going to know ass. this, but it was probably on sale at Daly's, which is a local department store that nobody would know other than if you lived in Humboldt County. Yeah, we weren't even upscale enough to shop at Mervyn's. That was kind of <laughs> But anyway, again, we'd have, we'd see, see how easy this is, man. We wrap each other. I know. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. I know our, our bio was, was that, that's pretty brief. You've written, obviously, uh, extensively on many subjects. Um, what part of the world are you in right now, I should ask, just out of curiosity? Well, I am sitting in um, the corner of my bedroom in Austin, Texas. This is, this is my Zoom room uh, from the pandemic moving onward. Nice. And um, you're a fellow Texan. So I, I, I am. Nice. I, I live in Austin uh, with my wife, Jeannie, and my daughters. And uh, I teach at Baylor University, okay. where I've been for 30, 34 years. And then the other kind of cool professional thing uh, is that I'm the canon theologian at the American Cathedral in Paris. And that is Paris, France, not Paris, Texas. Whew. Although that might also be cool. <laughs> it might be, but Paris, France, is, at least in that respect, would be cooler. That's, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. So you teach at I didn't, I didn't realize. Does does Baylor have a have a campus in Austin, or do you go to Waco? Uh, well, I have lived in Austin for twenty three years. Uh, my first, you know, however, 10, 11 years I was in Waco, uh, but I've been here uh, ever since. And the question that always follows is, do you drive to Baylor every day? No, I do not. Amen to that. I teach on Tuesdays and Thursdays when I teach. Um, there are some semesters when I don't teach. So. Austin has been really good for me in in terms of you know just being a a person who uh, writes and uh, cares about music and film and it's also sort of I mean just a very brief biography because you asked me about biography yeah I, since this is not church <laughs> uh, for twenty five years I was not a Christian so I was raised Southern Baptist and then I fled that tradition. And then in the darkest period in my life, I was rescued by a historically African-American church in East Austin and kind of patched up and, you know, sent back out, you know, to, to do the good work. And uh, so Austin is a place that I didn't necessarily want to come, but it's turned out to be the, like, the most incredible, profound experience in my life. You know, I found faith here. I found my wife here. And there's just, I mean, honestly, just so much more cachet to say I'm a writer from Austin, Texas. 
than to say I'm I'm a writer from a suburb of Waco. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's really funny because my son and I were just talking about Waco because I turned down a job to go there. Uh, I had had an opportunity to go live in Waco for a while. I, I work in oil and gas um, during you know my my day job, so I had a project pop up in Waco, and I'm like, ah, not doing it. It's just too. I live in I live in a little town called San Angelo, so it's you know three hours from Austin, which is fine. Um, I work in Midland, which is about a yeah, you know, hundred miles from where I live. I'm like, anyway, but he was like, Waco, that's a cool town. I'm like, yeah, except you know, when I was so as a kid, the only or kid or young adult, I guess I should say, the only association I ever had with Waco was the Branch Davidians. Up to then, no one had ever heard of Waco, and uh, until it was you know, until David Koresh and all his followers were were starting trouble with the ATF, and all of a sudden it was Waco. But then in my uh, later years, um, as a as a pastor and worship leader, and uh, David Crowder was a big influence on me. And he was, that's where he got yeah, David was, you know, that, that Baptist church in, in Waco, which was, I guess, a pretty big bastion or had a kind of a uh, fairly big presence on campus. Yeah. My, my friend Chris C founded that church with, with David. Yeah. So Waco is very different than we remember it, you know, cause you know, Chip and Joanne it, are there. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Now it's all gentrified, right? It's all like, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's crazy. Uh, but I mean, the nice thing is there's like, you know, some good restaurants and, you know, like when I lived there, my ex-wife and I used to have this joke about let's, let's go to that great new vegetarian restaurant. And then we would just collapse in chuckles because <laughs> that's, that's not a thing you're going to find in Waco, but Waco has changed a lot. And, and honestly, Baylor has changed a lot, which I'm super excited about. Um, and, and Baylor, at least for the better. I mean, the gentrification is not a great thing if you're a person of color living in Waco. Yeah, I would imagine. But uh, Baylor has made some really great steps over the last 10 years or so. And um, it's it's super exciting for me to be a faculty member there. Well, that's great. How many, how many books have you written? Just scrolling through your Amazon page, it seemed like it was pages and pages. I think this Baldwin book is 30. Yikes. Wow. I was really yeah. proud to write the one, John. No, honestly, my wife wrote a book and she's like, I wrote a book and I'm never going to write another book. <laughs> like she understood a little bit. It's like, this is hard. You know, like, you know, it's soul work. Yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah. But it, it's also like, you know, people say you've written 30 books, but it's like, this is me digging a ditch. Yeah. This, this is what I do. You know, uh, it's the the work I've been called to and the gifts I've been given. And, you know, if I don't show up for that, then I'm not doing what I'm called to do. So, you know, I, I write fiction, nonfiction, memoir. And you probably saw from the Amazon, um, like I worked on this uh, Bible translation, The Voice. And um, that was a really, really interesting thing. It's like, I didn't write the Bible, <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's it's a contemporary language rendering and so i i got a chance to work on this um while i was in seminary and so like there was like this great synergy where you know i'm studying biblical theology and scripture and languages and translating 10 books of the bible you know in into contemporary versions for this voice translation 
And it is, I mean, still by far the best-selling thing I've ever been involved with, which is as it should be, because it's the Bible, <laughs> right. you know? Yeah, absolutely. So like, you know, if, if my novel is competing with the Bible, then something has gone wrong with society, maybe. But. <laughs> uh, that's interesting. Though. I, I, did you guys, did you do a... Uh, like a paraphrase from the English or did you go farther back to the original languages? Well, it's, it's what, in, in like translation terms, it's a dynamic translation. And so basically the very distinct thing that we did is that we started at the writing level and not at the language level. So in, instead of being, let's, you know, let's get the most accurate translations from the Greek and Hebrew linguists, Let's get great writers. So like Brian McLaren and yeah, names are going to slip out of my head because of the pandemic. No worries. Because that's just what happens to me now. <laughs> I got you. But, you know, we we went out and uh, Lauren Winter, Phyllis Tickle. Oh, oh wow. Like all, all of these like really good writers. And that we started at the writer level. And that was actually the pitch that we made when we said, let's let's do this with the most beautiful language that we can. And then we'll have the scholars and the linguists come in behind us to backstop. It. And that was a really powerful thing because I remember I was translating Mark and there was one of the problem texts and I'm not going to remember the chapter and verse, but I changed a little thing. <laughs> and, you know, the, the linguist came back to me and said, I also wish Jesus had not said this. But he did. <laughs> and so we're going to have to change that back. I'm like, well, darn it. <laughs> well, sometimes, I mean, I guess there's only so much liberty you can take, right? Yeah, but I mean, what I love about the voice translation is it's intended to be used in worship. And so it's it's written like a screenplay. And so, you know, like it's intended to be read orally, you know, like the Gospels were intended so that was a very cool thing. And, and, you know, it's some years now. I think we finished up work on it, you know, maybe around 2005. So it's a long, long time ago. But it's still one of the things that I'm proudest of. And all of the other work that I've done is, you know, much more personal. Because, you know, it's, it's me writing and not a team of us. But in some strange way, you know, like going back and being a storyteller and getting to render these biblical stories into contemporary language continues to be like one of the great gifts that I've been given as a writer. Now I can totally see that the, the appeal of that we had a, uh, we had Terry Wildman on several months ago and I'm not sure if you've ever read the uh, first nations translation and uh, had, a, I'm writing it down. Uh, it definitely worth checking out. He's in a, he's a remarkable human anyway, but that what happens sometimes. And I think this happens with any time you take it, it uh, like a super familiar text and try to render it differently, it, it hits you differently, or it can. It can take you out of that rote, you know, memorization kind of thing. And so anyway, he was reading, he's like, do you mind if I read you a little bit of this? And I can't remember what he read now, but he read something out of John's Gospel, I think. And it had John and I both, like on the verge of tears. I'm like, oh, it's been a long time since I read scripture and had that kind of emotional reaction to it. But it was because of his choice of, well, and it was a team of people as well, but their choice of of how they describe Jesus and how they describe you know the different names and had moving it, weaving into it with native spirituality lexicon, you know that kind of vocabulary. Well, I don't, I and I was, and I don't know if you've ever heard of, uh, heard of or read anything by Black Elk. 
uh, Black Elk speaks. Oh, yeah. his, uh, so Black yeah, Elk, he, used, he, used, he uses Black Elk, lang- uh, some of his language yeah. with, within this translation. Nice. It's very, if, if you've read anything by Black Elk, you will recognize some of the, of the, of the way it is written. Yeah. Uh, within that, within Black Elk's, um, the way he wrote or spoke, which I found, because yeah. I've read, you know, prior to talking with Terry Wildman, I had, act, you know, I've read Black Elk Speaks. It's one of my, one of my favorite books. Um, and so when he read it, I could hear, I could hear that language. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's amazing to hear, you know, like people who are willing to go outside of the box, right? Even like Eugene Peterson with the message, right? Which uh, both both Nat and my my father uh, very much dislikes, and, <laughs> and 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 I think one of the reasons, and I, I would go so far as to say I don't I don't know if I would call it a translation as much as I would call it um, a paraphrase, and within that within that realm, I think it's more acceptable, and and more people would accept it because I find the the Message Bible to be very very readable, very accessible to modern language yeah because see i mean i mean what he's doing is like when he's translating things like saying that something's like a cold glass of iced tea yeah, right exactly, exactly. Like, yeah, yeah you know that's that is not a jesus-y thing right you know right. there there are no cold glasses of iced tea in palestine <laughs> right um, but, there should be though you know for <laughs> there should be yeah but but you know for for the readers it's a it's a way of you know transmuting that, you know, for first century agrarian society, I mean, all the different things that kind of alienate us from the text and, and kind of bring it into our life. And, you know, I, I have that same kind of respect for that. I mean, also, because that's just a huge, like, personal endeavor. Oh, yeah. You know, from this past pastor who says, I'm going to translate the Bible. Yeah. So that my people, the people that I serve will understand it better. Well, isn't it, isn't that what pastors have done? I mean, good pastors. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna paint a blanket over all pastors, but haven't pastors that it's kind of their job is to bring it into contemporary ideas for a younger generation. So they've kind of been doing this, and Eugene Peterson just puts it in writing, and all of a sudden he's like the pariah. Like, how dare you? How dare you? Like, change change the gospel truth into this. But pastors have been doing this for years to help their congregation along and to understand. That's that's the preaching task. Right. You know, so, you know, whether you're doing your own like explicit translations, your job is to translate the text into the lives of the people that you serve. Absolutely, yeah. And so what, you know, what he was doing and NT Wright does this in in his commentaries. And I'm like a huge fan of NT Wright and what I love about NT Wright is you can be on the left, you can be on the right, you can be conservative, you can be progressive, but everybody's like, oh, N.T. Wright is freaking brilliant, and we can all we can all gather around that, and and just um, that that notion that the job of the pastor or the prophet is to to bring the biblical text into the lives of of the listener. Yeah, hundred percent. Well. It's it's interesting you use the word prophet because that's a that's a that's a um, something that comes up kind of uh, quite a few times in your book on James Baldwin. Uh, James Baldwin is, uh, and I would agree with you, is like a modern day Jeremiah. His prophetic words, who I mean, he passed away in the eighties, but I you know I didn't I wasn't introduced to James Baldwin until probably the the mid you know like the 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 twenty teens. 
really where I became very serious in reading James Baldwin. And now I'm reading stuff he wrote back in the 50s and 60s, and I'm like, he's definitely a prophet. Uh, What he wrote speaks to me now as much as it spoke to people that was reading it when he wrote, when it was released, right? Yeah, so we are in this place now. It is, you know, November 27th as we're doing this conversation, 2023. We are 60 years out from the publication of The Fire Next Time. So this was his number one New York Times bestselling book on the New York Times bestseller list for 41 weeks. So in 1963, he had the number one book in America. He was one of the most, like, recognizable figures in America on the cover of Time magazine. He did a tour of the South, uh, covered by national media. The only reason that he wasn't on the dais at the March on Washington was because, like Bayard Rustin, who organized the march, he was gay. And Robert F. Kennedy, who was, you know, the attorney general for his brother, Jack, actually asked James Baldwin to pull together uh, a group of activists to talk about well, what what RFK actually wanted to do was to explain to all these people what the Kennedy administration was doing for black people. And that did not go so well for him. So, you know, I, I talk about that in the book and there have actually been books written about it. But in 1963, like James Baldwin was one of the most important and most recognizable figures in America. So it's, it's kind of crazy to think about this, like sort of 60th anniversary of that. And we're also just like weeks away from the 100th anniversary of his birth. So like the Baldwin centennial. But the the very weird thing, John, I mean, you're kind of pointing this out, is I've done dozens and dozens of media and podcast hits on this book. And a lot of times people are saying to me, I didn't know who James Baldwin was until I read your book. How come I don't know who James Baldwin is? And... I'm kind of creeping in the direction of this supposition that unlike Medgar Evers and Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, James Baldwin lived into irrelevance. And, you know, toward the end of his life, black activists thought that he was not radical enough. And his his powers, at least as a fiction writer, were diminished. And although he was an incredible mentor for people like Toni Morrison and Maya Angelou and uh, Henry Louis Gates, that period of 1963, like the 1960s are his, like his highest period. But I, I think that like Martin Luther King, if Martin Luther King had lived on, he might have had a similar kind of fate. Because, you know, toward the end of his life, he was finding it really difficult to attain the kind of success in organizing. Like, northern cities didn't work for him in the same way that the southern uh, cities had. And so I, I think one of the things about Baldwin is that he lives on to the point where it's possible for him just to sort of dwindle in the eyes of, of how people understand him. But Coming back to your original question, I mean, the big thing is when we look at his work, and I think about many of his works to the end of his life, he is speaking absolutely into this moment. And so, you know, the Jeremiah thing, which is something he actually claimed himself and others kind of attached to him, 
you know, I think about Jeremiah's temple sermon, uh, which is basically this. You can say that you are a believer. You can say that you follow God. But if you don't love the despised, if you don't reach out to the widow and the orphan and the exile, then God will not be in this place. God will not be with you. And it's, it's a very familiar kind of rhetorical trope in American life. But, you know, Baldwin holds us up to a mirror in the 1950s, 1960s, and up until the end of his life in 1987. And I think, you know, if he were here today, he would be, he would be recognizing how far we have backslidden, slidden in the last, let's say, eight years. We, we, we have gone so far backward in terms of xenophobia and racism and hatred across boundaries. When, when Baldwin's primary thing is about love and the recognition that we are trapped in our history and we've got to tell the truth about it or we can't move forward. It strikes me that that would put him today, in my mind anyway, in the role of the, of, of of, of a prophet in the sense that he would be going against the prevailing narrative because we'd love to pat ourselves on the back and tell <laughs> ourselves right. and remind ourselves how far we've come. Well, look at how far we've come. I mean, you know, I mean, race, and, and, if, and if, if you want to, you know, and I'm not an expert on this subject, I don't try to be or I don't claim to be for sure. But if you want to bury your head in the sand and make some sort of sweeping, general, you know, generalizing claims about race relations in America, I, I guess you could. I don't think they're true. I don't think they're, I don't think they ring true for most people's experiences. And we fall into that trap of just because, um, it maybe isn't my experience. I don't think it's true across the board. Does that make sense? Like, so I, even, even amongst yeah. my friends who are African American, sometimes I get some of that because for them, maybe personally, maybe they don't experience some of this, but the larger issue anyway. So it, I don't, I think it's, I think it's easy to, to feel self congratulatory. And, and feel like we've done, man, we've just gone so far when the, I guess when the measuring stick is, you know, maybe, maybe the, uh, the, the kinds of stuff was happening in the sixties. And of course my brain is going fried too, John. God darn it. What, what, what are we doing on Monday? I'm thinking back to like Jim Crow era. Okay. Yeah. Compared to that, I guess we're doing better. Like if that's your measuring stick, sure. Right. So like, yeah, 10,000 people didn't gather around a courthouse in Waco, Texas to watch Jesse Washington being lynched today. So bravo for us. <laughs> Hooray for us. <laughs> but then we have, we have preachers today, and I, it was just in the last week or two that I read a uh, preacher saying that uh, the, the master-slave relationship was about peace and love and compliance and nothing about negative. Right, that there was no negative. So we, we Who the hell said as that? we move forward, I can I, I'll, I'll look it up Maybe. and I'll, I'll add it to like the notes or something. But I was astonished to read that a preacher actually had the balls to say that. That is so pervasive, and it's you know we hear it coming out of Florida, and you know kind of the curriculum language being included in the teaching about slavery there, and it's just. I'm, I'm, 
slowly, please God, finishing a book on racist mythologies for Oxford University Press. I'm like five years into it. And apparently, like every book I'm going to write from now on is going to take five years or more. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, like one of the big, big things around that is, you know, people justifying what slavery was because they feel like it's it's an ennobling and civilizing kind of thing for for people who needed to be ennobled and civilized and you and i know that that's not a thing so to have to have this language now is it is so disheartening and yet it's not at all surprising you know ibram kendi in his work talks about how Unlike, you know, Dr. King talking about the arc of the moral universe, he says racism in America is like a, like a pendulum on a clock. And it goes back and forth and it's affected by all the things that happened in the culture. And so for everybody who thinks that we be- became a non-racist culture because Barack Obama was elected president, there are millions of people who are incredibly pissed off that Barack Obama was elected president. And so it becomes possible for an ardent racist to be elected president. So we, we go this way, we go this way. So, you know, what Baldwin would say, though, is that history and our, our willingness to grapple with history is the essential piece. And so I, I do a ton of anti-racism work. You know, as as an author and as a person working in the the formal church, and I'm I'm very much drawn to the model that Jamar Tisby has set up, which is about acknowledgement and relationship and commitment. And so, acknowledgement is that very first step, but it's the essential step, and it's the step that a lot of Americans came to at least temporarily. You know, after we watched a black man murdered by a police officer. On video. And, you know, millions of us had to grapple with the fact. I mean, you know, John and Nat and I are white guys who know that this would never have happened to us. So there there was that moment, you know, where a bunch of people had that moment of acknowledgement. And that's the first step. And and Baldwin would say that's the essential step. With without acknowledging that and grappling with our history, we are all trapped together. We are all enslaved by our history. But the thing is, you can see that and go, oh, that's awful. And then you can retreat from it, which is what I think a lot of our fellow Americans have done since. So for as much as I've tried to push the conversation past that acknowledgement into relationship and into some kind of commitment, there are plenty of people who are like, Okay, I saw it. That's all I need. And and as Baldwin says, and you know, Baldwin was nothing if not honest with himself. He said, the status quo is so hard to change because it will require people with power giving up their power. And you know, Dr. King said something similar. You know, people with privilege rarely give up their privilege. That I think is part of the prophetic thing that Baldwin brings into our conversation at this moment which is just that we are in this space where we need to move forward 
And there are so many things that have to happen for us to do that. And we don't seem to be willing to do them. And so many people are actually not willing to even acknowledge, you know, the racism, the xenophobia, the, the privilege. And so many white Christians, I mean, the whole thing about white Christian nationalism, which is just so terrifying to me, is this idea that they believe that they are embattled. Yeah, right. They're, they're, they're beset on all sides, right? And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to piss off probably some of our listeners right now um, because it's super easy to attack the, the fundamentalist evangelical Christian right. But there is a, there's, a, there's also a group on the far left who have feel like they are, and I'm going to use words that are going to like trigger people, that they are so woke that racism no longer is part of their life. Yes. And uh, that they have created a, a world around themselves that says, I am so not racist that I don't have to deal with this either. Oh, they've transcended. Nice. They, yeah, they've, they've, be, they've moved beyond. And, and, and I, you know, and I'm not going to pretend like I didn't like, you know, tip my toes into that, into that pool where I was like, I, I feel like I am so beyond. And then some, you know, a, 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 a person of color who's a friend of mine says one thing and I'm like, oh shit, I'm not even close. I'm not even close. I don't even remotely understand. And so it's, so there, there is this problem on both sides. One side is they don't see it because they refuse to see it. And one side that says, I don't see it because I'm so beyond it. And you know, the, the problem is that even if you don't believe that you're personally racist, we are still a part of this structure, you know? Right. So there, let, let me tell this story real quick. For a number of years, uh, Baylor sponsored a film festival at Washington National Cathedral, uh, where we would show films about race and justice and, you know, talk about them, you know, in panels on the, on, on stage. And, um, so one year we were showing films by Spike Lee, one of my like three or four, my favorite filmmakers. And, uh, so we, we had shown do the right thing. Uh, which which I have been teaching since it came out in 1989. And just like sidebar, there has never been a time when I have shown it over the last 30, however many years, when some young black man has not recently been killed by a police officer. So there there has never been a time when it has not been incredibly relevant. So Corva Coleman was our moderator on stage that night. Uh, Corva Coleman from NPR. Uh, brilliant moderator, great journalist. Uh, I was the only white face on stage that night, which was, you know, as it should be, you know, as we talk about uh, a, a film about race and justice. And Corva turned to me, and this was her first question after we watched Do the Right Thing, and like there had been, you know, the requisite shock and and lament about that film. And she says, Greg, could you tell us a little bit about your experience with law enforcement? And <laughs> she's... So, just for your listeners, um, my wife, Jeannie, always asked me to preface this story by saying I've never been convicted of a crime. I have never done hard time. I spent an afternoon in jail one time when I was picked up by the police uh, because my license had been suspended. <laughs> so that is my whole, like, that's my hard time. That's what I've done. But 
After living in the Deep South, my family moved to a place in Oklahoma, a small town where there were no brown people. And so 3,000 white people, small town, three police officers. I knew them all by name. They knew me. I think they had my mom's phone number on speed dial or whatever the you know equivalent of that would have been in those days. And so like I, I am... I don't know why Corva has asked me to do this, but I'm honoring her question. I'm just talking about, you know, a multitude of times when I was pulled over by the police and nothing happened to me. And then she turns to Van Newkirk from the Atlantic Monthly, who is this slight human being. And the most threatening thing about him is the color of his skin. And she said, Van, could you tell us about your experience with law enforcement? And so Van puts his hands out in front of him. And so listeners, I am like putting my hands at two and 10 on the steering wheel. And and Corvus said, Van, can you explain to our audience here in the National Cathedral what you're doing? And he said, I am putting my hands in plain view on the steering wheel so that I don't get killed. And just light bulbs going off over the heads of every white person in our audience. Because what they're understanding is that we live in a system which treats people differently. And it's it's not enough to individually say, I'm not racist. And hooray, because that's better than being racist. But it doesn't fix the system. It doesn't change the problem. I've uh, I've asked this question of two two guests that we've had on the on the on the podcast who are both black men, and I described a situation that I put myself into and asked them if they would do it. So I'm 17 years old. I have a car. I have a, an old truck. I have five people in the cab, <laughs> which it only is meant to hold three, if that. Right. Right. So no one's seat belted. Right. I have four, five more people in the bed of the truck. At the time, it was legal if you were 18 to drive in the back of a bed. This is no but longer they, legal. And they weren't. But they weren't. They but they weren't. weren't. I didn't have my lights on. My lights, it was night. My lights were not on because I forgot to turn them on. I sped through a yellow light. As I get pulled over by a cop, I realize that I'm not wearing my seatbelt. And in my... In my ignorance, my choice was to get out of the truck and walk towards the police officer because I didn't want him to see that I was not seatbelted. I had a gun pulled on me. The gun was pu- I had a gun pulled on me because no idiot actually walks towards a police officer on a traffic stop, which I didn't know at 17. But here's the difference. I'm alive to tell it. And I asked the, both these black men, would you have done what I did? And they're... they're, they're I'm not going to use the explicit as uh, they use, but it was, no. yeah, fuck no. uh, because I would be dead in about half a second. And that is, that was for me, that was the moment of like, okay, this is what privilege is. This is what white, white privilege is because nowhere in my, the back of my head did I even remotely think that this was a bad idea because I've never had a bad experience with a cop. Or if you thought it was a bad idea, it never entered your I never brain thought, it would yeah. be a fatal idea. Right. I mean, you might you might piss the guy off, 
You're probably going to make right. sure you get but, a ticket, but no one thought, oh my God, he's going to draw that. Oh, and I did. I got, I got a well, ticket good, and, I, and I actually had to go see it and I had to go to court and all that. <laughs> but again, I'm alive to go to court, to sit in front of a cop well, and get berated for my stupidity. Whereas if I was a black man and I think Martin Luther King Jr., when, when he's talking specifically in the later years of his life before his death, when he's becoming, I think, a little bit more radical, which I, I, you know, I connect more with the the radical version of MLK than I do the, you know, when he's starting to say, you know, things like, um, and I'm going to get this quote out of out of whack. Um, it's like protesting or no, it's rioting is the is the voice of the unheard, right? Which no one wants. No one wants to say that quote when they talk about Martin Luther King, right? It's always about love and togetherness. And, and he had a dream, you know. He's like. Yeah, at some point he's like, "Hey, we need to move beyond this and find a way to curtail the 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 what's going, what's happening to our black siblings, Malcolm X, and James Baldwin. James Baldwin was consistently saying, "Hey, these are the issues that that my siblings are are going through on a day to day basis. You know, they're not walking out of their." The worst day of my life is uh, I might get yelled at or called a name because I, I you know, I wear a, a rainbow bracelet on my wrist. I don't walk down the street wondering if the color of my skin is going to get me shot today. Exactly, and and I love I love how you talked about privilege in that way because I mean I I don't know if you guys feel this way like I I come from a working class family. And it, it, it doesn't feel to me, it doesn't feel to me like I've been privileged, but there has never been a time in my life when the color of my skin has held me back or in, endangered my life. And so like, you know, part of that recognition of the history that Baldwin talks about is just, you know, all of these, again, coming back to the book that I'm working on, the, the mythologies that are in place that put people like us at the top of the ladder, whether or not, you know, we intended to be there. I mean, like we woke up on third base, right? Yeah. On the third rung of the ladder, right? Well, and, and, and what, what people specifically within the working class white America don't understand is we have been sold a bill of goods that tells us that it, this is, this is the world we live in. It, and I hate to say it because it, if it, it, it hurts my soul to even say it, but we live in a world where we have been told, well, at least we're not black. Yes. That is one of the formative myths. So, right. And so this goes back to one of the first rebellions against, uh, slave labor where whites and blacks were working together and the, and the white upper class is like, okay, oh crap, we have a problem. They're working together. And what they did is they created a situation where lower class whites could potentially work themselves out of that situation. So they separated the poor whites from the poor blacks. And so we've now lived in this myth for centuries where that, that is, that is our core belief. At least I'm not black. At least I'm not in, I don't live in, I don't live in the ghetto, right? All these different words we want to use that have been thrown at us. And it's, it's a line. It's just, it's just a whole line of bullshit that's been given to us to separate us from the plight of the poor period. Because again, we're not poor blacks. 
Yeah. So I've got two thoughts. First, uh, I'm holding up here, and your listeners can't see this, but this is a, a great play by Baldwin called Blues for Mr. Charlie. And it's it's based on the Emmett Till murder, and it has an incredible sympathy for the white murderer who is basically poisoned by this, you know, this theology, if you will. Like, you, you are poor, but at least you're not black. And... And there is this kind of cry that's uh, that's uttered by this character, the the, the murderer, toward the end, uh, as he you know speaks to another white man, and he says, "Have you forgotten you're a white man?" I think that that myth that was planted by people in power, wealthy you know uh, privileged people, to keep poor white people from being in sympathy with black people, with people of color, was the thing that Martin Luther King was working on late in his life. And I've, I've done archival research at the um, LBJ Library here in Austin. And you may know that uh, toward the end of his life, Dr. King was working on another March on Washington. But it wasn't just going to be about black people. It was going to be black and white and about justice and jobs and the Vietnam War. And there are so many telegrams, telephone calls, letters to the president's office about how what Martin Luther King is doing makes him the most dangerous person in America. Because what he's trying to do is to leap across that myth and say that poor white people and poor black people have so much more in common than they've been permitted to understand. And that that's, that was a really weird thing for me. And, you know, I'm Episcopalian because that's the church that rescued me in East Austin. I mean, thanks be to God. I, I would rather be rescued than dead. But I remember a letter from an Episcopal priest in Florida that said to, to uh, LBJ that, Martin Luther King basically needed to be stopped by any means necessary. That's it's not a good look for your faith. <laughs> yeah, no, no, but maybe one of those other myths. I'm not. I'm not sure what myths. What what all is in, encompassed in this? But this is the pushback I get from white folks when whenever I even use the word privilege, which is, I bet you could probably fill in the blanks. But I wasn't handed anything. I. I worked for everything. I, I, you know, and so you, and maybe you talk to like a, like a couple guys like John and I who are working class. You know, we're raised by working class people. I have friends who were way poorer than I was. And I have friends who had, had a lot more money than we did. But, but privilege was never about that. At least, at least the way it's been explained to me, it's always, it's always ever been about access. It's always ever been about like you, like how you articulated it that, okay, well, I don't remember ever having an experience walking into a store except I was actually like, as soon as I started saying this, I, I, I'll caveat this with like, when you're, when you're, when you're a punk ass kid, you get followed in stores no matter what. All right. Yeah. Cause you're going to pick something up. Right. Yeah. But one of my good friends in, in say elementary school could walk into the local little mini market, um, dressed to the nine, you know, looking like clean cut. I was always kind of a shaggy looking kid, but, and they would tell me these stories of getting followed around. Like we just, we just get followed in stores, you know? What was heartbreaking was talking to the same people that John and I, John mentioned we were talking to about their experiences with law enforcement. 
And it was bad enough that, that they had endured that, but they were having to teach their children that. So they were like, oh, I had, have any of you had these conversations with your sons as they got their driver's license? Hey, here's how to not die tonight when you go out. And so the, the privilege for me was and is, what I, at least how I recognize it is, I have the ability to think about those things or not think about those things at any given time. I don't have yeah. to think about yeah. it or I can. And for my, for my black friends and for my gay friends and for anybody else who's in another marginalized group, they don't get to turn that part of their lives off and suddenly, and suddenly be safe. So, um, it's gotta be exhausting. I would think on some level, just be, have to be constantly sort of on guard against those kinds of things. So just my thought. Yeah. I, I just hosted the great black theologian from Oxford, Anthony Reddy for three weeks, for three weeks at Baylor. And, uh, he was amazing, but we had like, you know, deep dive talks. Cause like we're driving around Texas. There are no trains. You know, he's used to getting on a train. He lives in Birmingham in England, oh, Birmingham, England. No trains, they're not carrying people. They're not carrying people. So, you know, he's used to getting on a train and riding an hour and he gets to Oxford. But it's like, I'm, I'm taking him to Dallas, taking him to Waco, taking him to San Antonio. So like we, we had these long, long conversations and there are a lot of things that, that grew out of that. But one of them was just his, his honesty about the exhaustion, like physical, mental and spiritual. Yeah. From living in a black, living in a black body. I, it would have to be. Well, I feel like that's, I'm, you know, I'm trying to figure out what, what draws me to, to, to Baldwin. And I think that's part of it is he had a way of explaining that, that no, I don't feel like anyone else within and specifically his era had the ability to say, you know, being a, a gay black man. So he's already, you know, he's like, he's got multiple people coming at him, but he had this way of explaining that the exhaustion of being who he was born to be, who he was that made you feel like, okay, for a moment within his writing, I can understand what he's saying. I'll never, I'll never live it. I'll never be that. But he had the ability to write in a way that I'm like, oh, okay, I, I see it. Again, I'm never going to live it. I'm never going to, I'm never going to experience it. But his writing was done in a way that I could, I could, I could connect to his feelings, his feeling of loss, his feeling of despair, his feeling of sadness that all came through his writing so well. Yeah. John, I think that's so, that's so well put because I mean, one of the things I write about early in the book is that I wanted to write about Baldwin because it feels like he allows us all, whatever our lived experience, to understand his lived experience. But I also know from teaching Baldwin for many years at Baylor that he speaks across the spectrum to my students. You know, so, you know, Christian, non-Christian, gay, straight, black, white, Asian. But I also... I think about this experience where I, I had in the spring a, a, an athlete who was super smart, but super shy. Like he would not speak in class. And so, you know, I would read his journals and I'd be like, this is brilliant. I mean, like there's so much going on here. I would love to hear some of this in class. But, you know, he was shy. He didn't want to share. 
But he pulled me aside on the stairs one day before class while we were reading Baldwin's The Fire Next Time. And he said, I have never before felt seen. And when I read this, I feel like I understand myself. And so Baldwin gives this amazing gift to all kinds of people. You know, people who look like us, people who look like him, you know, and that I I write about that. The second chapter in the book is about Baldwin as an artist and a critic and what he understood about what great art does. And, And great art can be about things that are important, but they're not just about things that are important. So we were talking about Richard Wright and, and Baldwin's writing about Native Son and why it didn't succeed for him. Right. Because he felt like it was more about the protest than about the characters who, who Wright created. And, and so Baldwin was, as an artist and a critic, he was, he was about humanity. Like, what can I help you understand about what it means to be human? And we all have this little, as Faulkner would say, postage stamp of ground that we inhabit. So, you know, I'm Ojibwe or, you know, I'm uh, Asian or I'm just like a straight up white guy sitting here in Austin, Texas. But we all have these human characteristics that Baldwin helps us understand and collate. And, And I think the thing that I love most about Baldwin end of the day is his hope that despite the things that divide us, there are so many more things that unite us. There is this this really positive hope and desire for what Baldwin called the welcome table. This place, whether in this life or the next, I mean, whatever that is, where we won't be judged by who we are or what we look like or who we love or who we worship or don't worship. We'll just be seen you know, as human beings or in my theology as children of God, you know, bearing that imprint. So, you know, end of the day, I spent six years working on this book because that's apparently what I do now. (laughs) And not a moment of that was wasted. And I'm still like, I'm still doing research on James Baldwin. I spent a day in the archives at the Schomburg Center in Harlem uh, last month, reading correspondence between Baldwin and Alex Haley. And it's like, like the book is done, you know, <laughs> it, it doesn't benefit me as the author of, you know, uh, the gospel according to James Baldwin, but it benefits me as a human being because I want to keep learning about Baldwin and being in conversation with Baldwin. And, and, you know, it is rare that a book has done this for me. You know, I have not talked about U2 in a long time. I wrote a great book about U2, I think. Um, I wrote, you know, some, some great books about other topics, but it just feels like, you know, I'm leaving for Paris next week and Baldwin's going to be in my backpack like he has been for the last 10 years. Well, and so we bring up Wright and uh, the book Native Son, right? Which um, the character, it's bigger, right? Yeah. Yeah, bigger Thomas. So I read that book and and I'm blown away by by that book. I, that book was very influential in my understanding of black culture within that era. And you know, yeah, when 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 the shit hits the fan, how you react to it. But what I think what I think James Baldwin does as he critiques that book is he he takes a 
a thousand foot or a hundred foot view or a, a, a hundred mile view of that. And he's like, okay, yeah, within the black culture, this is this is what we're talking about. I'll never understand that because I'm not part of the black culture. So all the responses that Bigger has and how this this story unfolds is because he's within the black culture. And then the critique of it from Baldwin is, but that's not the only people who are reading this book. That's the way I feel. You know, that's the way I look at it. You know, and I could be wrong and people can tell me, you know, I'm full of BS. I don't know. But what I feel when Baldwin talks about it is like, yeah, but you have to go, you got to go farther back. You got to look at it from a bigger view. And if we're ever going to be able to reconcile as a race, a human race, we have to all come to conclusions that we don't understand each other the way we think we do. Yeah. And that's what I feel like James Baldwin is does is he's try, he tries to bring us all together and say, yeah, but you don't understand each other. Let me help you understand each other just a little bit. Uh, that's yeah. John, that's beautifully put. <laughs> Some, sometimes that's all I have to add. John is yeah. nice. I, nice. I, I, I do have to, nice. I do have to take a second and say a couple of things real quick. First of all, uh, I, I recognize the photo in the uh, bookcase behind you. So John and I are huge Stevie Ray Vaughan fans. Oh, <laughs> and he's got a picture from Zilker Park where, uh, where, uh, was it Zilker Park? Or wherever the statue is. I've been there a couple of yeah. times. Um, it's a great picture. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right yeah, I have a the, picture. Uh, yes. I have a picture by that same statue. Yes. It was one of the first things I went to when I went to Austin. I was like, okay, well, we're coming to Austin and I'm going to, I'm going to go find Stevie's statue because he's always been a hero of mine. Yeah. I'm also a massive U2 fan. But before I forget to ask you, Brendan Manning is a, Massive influence for for me. I put him in my sort of holy trinity of of of, of, no, of that's writers fair. that you know, like is between you know guys guys like him are such a are such a a rarity where somebody who can write so eloquently about these sort of spiritual experiences and and how to be you know how to really be seen and how to really be loved and then struggle their whole lives with being seen and loved like it's tragically real. To me, that doesn't disqualify him from saying what he says. It, 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 he's ultimately he's ultimately qualified. It elevates. But so you uh, you co-wrote the prodigal with him, uh, and I just was curious if that was something where you collaborated together closely, or something that you sort of contributed and worked on. Because I know this was towards the end of his life that that book came out. Yeah, and you know, I wish I could say that you know we sat down and worked on this together every day. That is not the tr- that is not the story. You know, I, I had the chance to have some exchanges with him about what the story would be. Uh, but because of his health and because he was in so, such decline, um, there, there was never really a question about who was going to be handling the writing duties. So, so the, uh, the author's note to that book is basically me sort of talking about uh, what it was like to collaborate with him. And the, the important decisions that we made, the, the formative decisions that we made were we knew that we wanted to do a contemporary retelling of the prodigal son because that was, that was Brennan's most important biblical story. And, and in a very real sense, my own most important biblical story. Uh, so we, we wanted to lean into that and to, to retell it in such a way that, that people could understand it in a contemporary idiom. And, Interestingly enough, he, he, he wanted to do something about Christian superstardom. So we wanted to write something about a, a megachurch pastor who falls from grace. 
as as they su- seem to do with some regularity. <laughs> yeah, it's their milieu, seems. <laughs> and and you know, Nat, as as you you were saying, you know, Brennan was a Christian superstar who also understood, you know, how difficult it was to make his way as a human every single day. And so, you know, he he talked about in his writing, you know, he would speak to 10,000 people and, you know, lift them off the ground. And then he would go back to his hotel room and drink a bottle of vodka. And like those two things have to be held together. So it's, it's, it's really interesting. I, when my agent, uh, who was part of the agency at that time that, uh, her dad represented Brennan, Brennan, and I was riding in Wales, uh, the country, not the, you know, seagoing mammal. <laughs> um, and she emailed me while I was working on a book in this library. And she said, um, would you be interested in writing a novel for slash with a really like a, a Christian superstar? And my immediate response was no and hell no. <laughs> Cause I mean, the first thing that occurred to me when I think about Christian superstars in, in, in writing was I thought, Oh, it's going to be that left behind guy. <laughs> like I, there is not, like, except for the fact that, like, we are bipedal humanoids exchanging oxygen for carbon dioxide. Yeah, that's I pretty can, much where <laughs> I cannot think of anything that that guy and I have in common. But then she said, it's Brennan Manning. And I was like, well, let's talk about yeah, it. That's a different story. Let's talk about it. Yeah. Because, you know, I did not come back to faith through Brennan Manning, but I know so many people who have either come back to faith or had their faith rescued by him. Like, if, and I said this in the introduction to that book, in The Prodigal, had I known Brennan earlier, it could have saved my life. Yeah, his his writing was just tremendous, yeah. And I can, you know, and I think there's a lot of comparison, honestly, between a Brendan Manning and a James Baldwin. These are people who, that's, uh, who I feel like, as you read their writings, they, they can, they can literally save your life. Yes. Nat and I have talked about Brendan Manning is like, you don't, I've read Brendan Manning when I was not ready to read Brendan Manning and it meant zero to me, nothing. And then I, I was at a very pivotal point in my life and I read Ragamuffin Gospel and it literally changed my life, right? Yeah. I've heard the name James Baldwin probably my whole life. It wasn't until the last decade where he has literally changed my life. Yeah. I think, first of all, you need to be open to accept what they're writing. 20, 30 years ago, I, I consider myself within the, the common words now as woke, right? That I'm not racist. I'm not, I'm not homophobic. And then I'm like, oh shit, I'm racist and I'm homophobic. Yeah. And, and now as I read, as I read someone like James Baldwin now, it's so uplifting. Whereas I think 20, 30 years ago, it, it, it would have been, it would have like felt like something, like I was doing something wrong. It, yeah, it would not have landed in the same way. And, and let me kind of pull this comparison together because I, you know, Brennan Manning, who is a Roman Catholic priest who left the Catholic Church, but he didn't leave Jesus. <laughs> and 
when I think about Baldwin, who was like this famous Harlem teenage preacher, like me, he left the church when he was a teenager. And in his mind, he didn't come back to it. But I I had the chance to preach at Wilshire Baptist Church in Dallas last fall on All Saints Sunday. And what I said, and I still stick by, is I said, you know, if James Baldwin were here this morning, we would recognize the spark of Jesus in him. And and to the end of his life, even though he said, I'm not a churchgoer, there's a, an open letter that he wrote to Desmond Tutu in the last year or two of his life, where the opening of that open letter is, I'm not a person of faith. And then he stops himself, like full stop, and revises and says, I am not a churchgoer. And he closes that letter by saying, in the faith. And it's not my exercise to, cha- to claim James Baldwin for Christianity. Like, you know, some of my Baylor students used to want to claim you too <laughs> for, for Christianity. But there is this very real sense that I have, and I, I wrote about this in the book, that, you know, whatever he felt his relationship with the formal church might be, the teachings of the church, the language of the King James Bible, the black gospel and spirituals that he grew up with. I mean, at his funeral service, there was like this incredible, beautiful moment where they played a recording of Baldwin singing, Precious Lord, Take My Hand. I mean, at the end of the day, what we claim, what claims us, I don't know. But you know, Baldwin has made me a better Christian. He's made my students a better Christian. He's made them better humans. And and I think, you know, coming back, John, to your, your thing, like when you read him and you're in the right space, he can absolutely change your life. 100%. The, uh, the book is The Gospel According to James Baldwin, uh, available wherever fine books are sold. Um, <laughs> we always encourage you to find a local bookstore. Um, yes. Yes. Failing that, fine. Give Jeff Bezos your money. But in the, uh, if it's at all possible, find a nice local bookstore, man. John and I have, uh, John's got really good local bookstores where he lives and he lives in a very small town and they can order anything he wants. Just have to maybe be willing to wait more than two and a half days for it. But I also understand the perils of, of, of trying to sell books in a, in a big space and, uh, Amazon ratings being important and Amazon ratings. Yeah. Unfortunately speak volumes. But while you're at it and you're shopping, say you're perusing, um, there's apparently like 20 or 30 other books you could be pick. You could pick <laughs> up the entire catalog. Yeah, there you go. I bet you that that he has written a book on something that you care deeply about. So, but um, man, I, I tell you what, man. Thank you, Nat. I, I appreciate you so much. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a little envious of some of the people you've gotten to uh, to uh, to hang with. And uh, even, even, even a cursory conversation with Brendan would, would would just be so welcome, you know. It would be awesome. Um, yeah, but I agreed. I appreciate the uh, the hard work you've put in, the the the, the content that you're putting out. Uh, I'm sure your students at Baylor appreciate it as well. But um, we will uh, make sure and connect to all your stuff in the show notes. Make sure and uh, encourage people to go out and buy all the books. And John, you were looking mystified. Why? What did I do? 
Oh, you, you, that's just your look. That's just, how you, that's just my look. Oh, that's just my look. Yeah, I, I, you were trying to get close, like, okay, what happened? Did we stop recording 45 I had to raise ago? my, we, I'm wearing, I'm wearing, bi, I'm wearing bifocals. So are you like, using a ring light? No. Yes, I am. Because I can see it all day long yeah. in your glasses and it's freaking yeah. me out. Because you know what it looks like, John? It, no, it Never. looks like when my, when my computer's thinking. And that little circle starts to go. So at least half a dozen times, I'm like, "Oh shit!" I'm like, "I'm like, nope, that's just John's stupid ring light." <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> anyway, say we started silly, we'll end silly. And, yeah, for sure. But we had some yeah. good seriousness yeah. in, the, in the middle. So, yeah. and I, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for hanging out with us tonight. Thank you very much, Austin, awesome. John, Nat. Such a pleasure. Grateful for your work and grateful to get to talk with you. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.